Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd. This week, Japan Times contributor Eric Margolis looks at how the climate crisis is impacting Japan here and now. But first, I talk with staff writer Ryusei Takahashi about how Japan's stance towards climate change has shifted since Yoshihide Suga became prime minister in September. Ryusei Takahashi, welcome back to Deep Dive. Thanks for having me. So last time I had you on the podcast, it was back in September. We were discussing the idea of a green recovery and basically came to the conclusion that Japan's was missing in inaction. But that episode also came out on the same day that Suga became Japan's prime minister. It was September 16th. And since he assumed office, he's made climate change a much larger part of his agenda than Shinzo Abe ever did. So how has Japan's stance towards climate change shifted over the past few months? Yeah, it's been a while since we last spoke, and a lot of things have happened since then. Like you just mentioned, Suga assumed the position of Prime Minister of Japan in September, and it was in late October during his first policy speech uh, in an address to the National Diet that he pledged that Japan would achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050. <laughs> And this is a lot more ambitious than Japan's previous target. Right. Before that, the country had vowed to eliminate carbon emissions sometime during the second half of this century. Uh, Obviously, that falls far short of the Paris Agreement, which calls for a 45% reduction in carbon emissions by 2030 and net zero carbon emissions by 2050. So the announcement by Suga in October was pretty big. Activists and advocates, climate researchers and experts have been sort of waiting for this announcement for years, if not decades. And for Japan, which is the third largest economy in the world and the fifth largest emitter of harmful greenhouse gases, this was significant, to say the least. Were you surprised by Suga's announcement? Yeah, honestly, um, like you and I have spoken about climate change multiple times on the pod, and each time, you know, it's hard not to feel a little despondent about the the speed and scale at which the country is moving to not just reduce harmful emissions, but to subsidize and promote the use of renewable energy resources like solar power, wind power. Um, and each time the the environment ministry or the trade ministry makes an announcement, you know, not just journalists like ourselves, but experts and researchers are really cautiously optimistic. You know, there's always the danger that something is just greenwashing. Most of these promises from public officials to act on climate change are non-binding. And more often than not, sadly, they turn out to be empty promises. Mm -hmm. With that in mind, then, what was actually contained in Suga's speech, apart from the headline message that Japan will aim to be carbon neutral by 2050? Were there many details accompanying that pledge? There weren't all that many details, but it's important to know that it was a policy speech, so it was never meant to have any details. And the the climate pledge was just one part of that speech. It included other things about recovery from the coronavirus. Obviously, that was the that, that was front and center. That was the biggest issue. It was a laundry list of things the Suga administration is going to look to sort of achieve, especially leading up to the elections uh, later this year. In terms of the climate pledge, I would describe it as just that, a pledge. 
um, sort of an expression of the direction in which Suga hopes to make the country move in. And, you know, even if it was a short part of a pretty surface level speech, there were some interesting parts of it. So in the pledge, Suga checked most of the usual boxes. He talked about the importance of renewable energy sources like solar energy and offshore wind power. He also pressed the importance of research and development into new technologies like carbon capture and carbon recycling. But talking points aside, there were several things that caught criticism. Not only did Suga fail to mention or propose a mechanism to monitor progress in trying to achieve zero carbon emissions by 2050, not only that, his speech included what a lot of advocates and experts feared the most, which is the country's further investment in nuclear energy. Which Japan obviously has a very strained relationship with due to the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear plant following the earthquake and tsunami on March 11th, 2011. Right. If there's a list of the most sensitive topics in Japan, nuclear energy would surely be towards the top. And it's, a, it's just a really complicated debate. You know, nuclear energy might be necessary to achieve zero carbon emissions. Um, whether it's safe or clean is an entirely different debate. Yeah, not one we have time to get into on this episode, at least. So late in October, Suga gave his speech to the Diet. But then more recently, on December 25th, the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, better known as METI, announced its own roadmap to shift Japan towards carbon neutrality. It's got this very sexy English title. Uh, Shinjiro Koizumi would be pleased with it. It's called The Green Growth Strategy Towards 2050 Carbon Neutrality. It's clearly inspired by Suga's speech. So what's outlined in this strategy document from METI? So the roadmap announced by the trade ministry in December is sort of a complicated bunch of different things. Technically, uh, it's not a proposal or a plan per se. It's more of a prediction of the economic growth that we might see if the country does achieve carbon neutrality by 2050. Okay. And I, and I know that's kind of hard to wrap your head around. It was for me when I was writing the story uh, because, yeah, it, it's not a proposal. It's sort of a, a prediction of what direction the country's economy might go. But contained within this strategy document is mention of increasing the production of renewable energy from sources such as solar and wind to certain levels by certain dates. So if it's not a strict proposal, how's it speaking about these technologies and Japan's support for them? Right, so it's kind of tricky. Um, The report designates 14 different industries in which it expects growth and basically says that investment is really important to achieve net zero carbon emissions. And so, like you said, the trade ministry is expecting significant growth in those sectors like wind and solar, um, even geothermal energy, things like that, and nuclear energy as well. Specifically with the trade ministry's strategy, I think it's important to to know that they're not proposing these increases be made in these sectors. They're saying that to achieve decarbonization, this might be necessary and that this sort of economic growth can and should be expected. The core principle of the trade ministry's strategy is their acknowledgement that the government needs to mobilize money in the private sector for net zero carbon emissions to become reality. The strategy outlines uh, a number of points. One example is that uh, the trade ministry recognizes 240 trillion yen 
in private sector savings and that certain subsidies and investments might be able to sort of thaw that and uh, move it around to renewable energy sectors. So they've identified that there's this vast amount of money in the private sector that they hope can be mobilized to spur a shift towards a carbon neutral Japan by 2050. Yes. And the Japanese private sector is known, um, I don't know if infamous is the right word, uh, for hoarding money. There's hundreds of trillions of yen in the Japanese private sector, uh, which is why the Japanese economy is one of the most sturdy or consistent in the world. But it also means that incentivizing ambitious investment is difficult. And through this strategy document, METI is outlining various mechanisms by which they hope they can encourage investment from the private sector, such as tax incentives, subsidies, and private-public partnerships. Right. And what I took away from this announcement um, is that the strategy is sort of the trade ministry's attempt to help the private sector understand the potential to propose to the private sector and all the money they've got saved up that uh, there's a huge opportunity in investing big and doing it early, you know, get ahead of the curb uh, to help bring down the price of renewable energy resources. To sum it all up a little bit then, we've got these two big announcements, one from Suga and one from Meti, but neither of them seem like they're currently concrete policy. They sound more like stepping stones towards this vision of a carbon neutral Japan. Right. And if those are stepping stones, the direction of the pathway is determined by discussions that are ongoing right now at the trade ministry. The trade ministry is stipulated by law to revise the country's strategic energy plan once every three years. These come in the form of subcommittee discussions um, at the trade ministry held about once or twice a month, um, and those began late last year. And those triennial discussions are what determine the country's energy output and input and basically its entire portfolio, Um, you know, how much coal-fired power it's going to use, invest in or get rid of. Um, Same goes for solar power, wind power, nuclear energy, all that stuff. And if I remember correctly from the last podcast we did together, we're expecting the results of those discussions sometime in the first half of this year. Right. The subcommittee is expected to announce revisions as late as June of this year. So if Suga's plan is to take any real shape towards 2030, what we'll be hoping to see is that this strategic energy plan is revised heavily in the favour of renewables and non-renewable sources of energy, such as coal, will be phased out. That's the hope. And it goes without saying that Suga declaring carbon neutrality or pledging to achieve carbon neutrality in the next three decades will is going to have a big impact on those subcommittee discussions. Even the strategy the trade ministry announced in December was heavily influenced by Suga's remarks. Um, they were quoted throughout the documents. And I think one of the biggest challenges moving forward is how public officials like Suga and those in the trade ministry are going to inspire change in the private sector. But by that metric, if the strategic energy plan is more ambitious, surely it will also encourage the private sector to take more ambitious action and align itself more closely with Suga's vision. I think it's going to take a combination of different strategies to get the private sector moving. And we got a glimpse of how the government might approach that dilemma uh, in December when... 
reports came out of the government saying that uh, there were plans underway to impose a ban on the new sale of gasoline-powered automobiles sometime between 2030 and 2035. The Tokyo Metropolitan Government basically made the same announcement, saying it would do the same uh, in the capital uh, by 2030. If we use your metaphor from earlier, uh, to me that looks like the first stepping stone. And in trying to sort of move the private sector, maybe shove is the more accurate word, um, in the right direction, the central government is setting its sights on the automotive industry, which has been a staple of the Japanese economy for basically decades since the end of World War II. Mm-hmm. And coming back to the announcement made by Suga and the strategy document published by METI, contained in both of their visions, both of their roadmaps of a carbon neutral Japan, is also a heavy reliance on technologies like carbon capture, technologies that haven't being deployed at real commercial scale yet anywhere in the world. So what's the reaction been to that reliance on these technologies to complete the carbon neutral vision? You pretty much described it. One of the biggest criticisms of Suga's policy speech in October uh, was this sort of high expectation um, that the country will be able to rely on carbon capture technology in reducing carbon emissions and achieving net zero. Um, But as it stands, there are less than a handful of operational carbon capture sites on the planet. Um, And even those ones are at really small sites, um, small power plants in in places like British Columbia and things like that. And so the main criticism was that Sugo was hedging his bets on technology that doesn't exist yet. So I know I said earlier that a lot of advocates are feeling this sort of uneasiness or cautious optimism Uh, following those announcements. But that said, there's little disagreement that these are positive signs. One expert I interviewed, um, I think, summed it up really nicely. And he said, at last the debate has shifted from if Japan will take action to when and how. That was Risei Takahashi. After the break, Eric Margolis joins us to discuss how the climate crisis is already affecting Japan. Welcome back. Joining me now is Eric Margolis, a freelance journalist based in Nagoya and a contributor to the Japan Times. Eric, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you so much for having me. You recently wrote an article for the Japan Times titled The True Cost of the Climate Crisis on Japan. Tell me, how did you end up writing this piece? Well, I I do a fair amount of uh, reporting on the climate crisis, not just in Japan. And one of the most important things that I have come to recognize as I report on climate change is that it's really important that we move from thinking about the effects of the climate crisis uh, from the from the future tense into the present tense. So a lot of the a lot of the, the things that were once projections, you know, the sea levels are projected to rise, temperatures are projected to rise. That is happening, and it happened in 2020. So I wanted to write a sort of a factual piece that's saying this is literally what the clim- what climate change did to Japan in 2020. 
Yes, a really good read. Thank and you. in a way, I think quite surprising to see the extent to which people here are already being affected by climate change. Because, yeah, you're totally right. I think a lot of the time you think about climate change as something that will happen towards the end of this century, maybe, right. rather than in 2021. So what are some of the examples of climate change that we've seen taking place here? Yeah, so climate change is, I think of it as kind of like a, a series of causes and effects, right? So the root cause is obviously greenhouse gas emissions, whether that's CO2 or methane or deforestation. Um, and that, you know, it causes the temperature to go up and that sort of has climate ripple effects from there and then economic ripple effects from there and then cultural ripple effects from there. Mm-hmm. Especially last 10 years, but really last 30 years, the climate effects have really hit Japan. So that means that we've observed increased temperatures in Japan. We've observed more days of heavy precipitation, fewer day, rainy days, and less snow, uh, and, and mm. less snow depth. We've seen more instances of extreme precipitation. Uh, and really, it, the last four or five years have been remarkable because we've seen really damaging typhoons uh, or rain-related disasters almost every single year. Typhoon Lan in 2017, Jebi 2018, obviously uh, 2019, and torrential rain in 2018, 2017, and 2019 and 2022. So, you know, we've seen huge climate impacts on Japan every year that are just getting more costly and costly. And that's sort of the starting point and the, the economic effects come after that. Mm-hmm. And another interesting fact I've taken from your article is that the Ministry of the Environment came out with a report in 2018 that said not only are temperatures rising in Japan, but they're also rising at a faster rate than the global average, which will also certainly impact this kind of extreme weather, right? Yeah, and and there's the precipitation is one part of it, and then there's also pure heat. The Ministry of Environment also reported that Japan is getting an extra heat wave day once every five years. So you know that's another day, an extra day every couple of years. That's thirty eight, thirty nine degrees Celsius, uh, and we've seen and we've seen these heat waves, quite frankly, kill a lot of people. And what kind of costs are we seeing associated with these extreme precipitation and heat events, you know, aside from the deaths you mentioned? Yeah, so first you have pure damages. So the there was severe uh, rain and flooding in, in Kyushu this summer, in addition to killing 64 people and causing 200,000 residents to evacuate, you have rivers overflowing, mudslides, and just sheer disaster damage of destroyed buildings, houses and bridges being swept away, infrastructure being destroyed. And mm-hmm. the, the price tag on that this year in Kyushu was about 550 billion yen. And, and um, some of the typhoons in the last few years have, have seen closer to 2 trillion yen. And, and that's, just in, that's just in damages to, to buildings, pure sort of destruction. Uh, you then also need to calculate the sort of indirect economic effects of that on jobs, on tourism, on on the local economies. And that's really, that's hard to calculate. Um, so it, because these effects spread so wide, but uh, and most experts agree that those damages 
usually are more than the direct destruction of property and infrastructure. And related to that, one quote that you had in your piece was from Miguel Esteban, a professor of environmental and civil engineering at Waseda University. And he said, and to quote, everything is at risk. From an engineering point of view, it would probably be better to move everyone out of this country and resettle them elsewhere. Which, you know, that's a very bold statement to make. So what did he mean by that? Yeah, well, he, I think he, he, he did sort of mean it in tongue-in-cheek. He, he, said, he said after that, of course, I'm not going anywhere. But I, I think he's, he's pointing out that there's so many practical challenges here in terms of the way climate change is going to affect the economy, affect infrastructure. It just requires so much adaptation uh, from every level of society that if you're if you're just going from a purely what is the simplest way to solve all of these problems, it would be everyone leave. N- of course, it's not it's not happening, but it's a it's a way to think about the enormity of the challenge. Mm. And I guess a part of his calculation is based on where most people live in Japan, which is in low lying coastal areas. You know, most of Japan's major cities are on the sea. Tokyo's on the sea. Osaka's on the sea and assume all of these will become vulnerable to sea level rise over time. Yeah, the the rising sea levels uh for for Japan uh, and it's not uh, you know rising sea levels are posing immediate threats in in many places around the world. In Japan most experts agree that it's not uh, an immediate issue for Japan, but from a long-term perspective, yes, the the pretty much all of the infrastructure needs to be updated to withstand a meter rise in sea levels. Uh, and of course, it's not just the sea levels themselves that are the concern, but uh, storm surge. Uh, and there's a, it, it made the news a few years ago, but during Typhoon Jetty, a, a flood-proof runway at Kansai Airport was flooded. This, this infrastructure is simply outdated. Miguel Esteban did a study uh, and he and his team calculated that it would cost 370 billion yen to upgrade Tokyo's infrastructure to properly defend the city against rising sea levels, whereas the potential cost of inaction could exceed 100 trillion yen. So you're, yeah. you're talking about, I mean, massive numbers, but a very, very large payout if cities are able and the whole nation is able to invest in upgraded infrastructure. One of the things I liked about your article is that you also wrote quite extensively about how people and industries outside of urban centres are being affected by climate change currently. And you focused a lot on agriculture. So how is the agriculture industry being affected by climate change? Agriculture is being severely impacted by climate change already. If you if you're going just from farm to farm, right? You ask, you go to a, a farmer, you ask him, "Is climate change affecting you?" They might say yes, they might say no. You go, you know, every every experience is going to be a little different. But mm-hmm. zooming out, uh, in 2012, the Environment Ministry reported increases in damages across all different crops. And so they've been observing this already for years. So again, it's one of those past tense moments in 2020 
uh, rice yields were affected by high temperatures, uh, especially in Kyushu. Um, you know, apples are being damaged by high fall temperatures uh, in, in Nagano Prefecture and northern Japan. You've seen pretty much every crop, or not every crop, but many crops, especially fruits, uh, have already reported damages due to high summer temperatures. It's not all bad. Some, some farms are doing fine. I, I spoke mm-hmm. with the, the JA group in Aomori Prefecture, and you know, they, they said that you know, their vegetables are, are getting along fine, but they're still concerned because they've seen much less snowfall in recent years, uh, they're they're concerned about their apples. It's for so for the farms that aren't already being impacted, they're uh, starting to really perceive the impact. And what about fisheries? How are they being impacted? The fisheries are really interesting because um, the the change is is pretty amazing. It's happening so fast. Uh, the Japan has a interesting. Uh, marine, I don't know if you call it geography, but Japan is such a, it runs so far from north to south that tropical fish in Okinawa and and southern southern Kyushu are meeting up with temperate fish. And it all goes all the way up, you know, to, to much colder waters in Hokkaido. And mm-hmm. in real time, we're seeing all the fish from the south push north hard. Uh, one of the one of the most striking things to me that uh, I found in this reporting was how was the speed at which tropical reef species are moving northward. You've seen Okinawan fish like parrotfish and rabbitfish uh, are starting to be seen in mainland Japan, and and and, ma- and fish common to mainland Japan like yellowtail you're now seeing in Hokkaido. And uh, fisher fishers in Hokkaido are having to switch from salmon to yellowtail. Fishers uh, in Tokyo Bay are having to, to switch away from, from cherry base, from abalone. It's just a huge, all of the species are being swapped out. The water temperatures are causing real problems for seaweed. Uh, there's been a lot of reporting about that, especially this summer in, in Tokyo Bay and sort of the need for to turn to Korea and other, to other foreign markets for seaweed. That's a problem. But also, uh, I think it's a it's a cultural and ecological concern as well, which you can really see with fish. Fisher fishermen in Hokkaido can catch yellowtail, but it, it's really a, a huge change, right? What I mean, if you go to Hakodate, you go to oh, you you want to eat salmon, and it's kind of tragic in a way if that becomes a relic of the past, sort of killed off by climate change. So this is where the effects of climate change ripple out into the cultural sphere as well, as you said earlier. Exactly. How are people adapting to these changes that they're experiencing? A, bi- a big one is obviously the adaptation of, of swapping one thing for another, the, the, the cold weather thing for the hot weather thing. So in southern Japan, uh, farmers are starting to grow different kinds of oranges and avocados that uh, cope better with warmer climates. Your fishermen are, are in Hokkaido are switching to yellowtail. And uh, some, it, it hasn't happened a lot, but one sake brewery made a sort of a splash by relocating uh, from Gifu Prefecture to Hokkaido. As in they moved the whole brewery? Mo- moving the brewery. Yeah, and 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 brewing their brewing their sake in a different place altogether, and I, I think that example is really interesting because it goes to show the limitations of adaptation. 
right, this company survived. They, they moved their sake brewery elsewhere. But it's a, loss for, it's a loss for Gifu. It's a loss for that local economy. And, and you know, that's, that's, that's the way the market works, right? They're always going to be winners and losers. But uh, I think you're going to see some winners with climate change and adaptations, but you are going to see a lot, a lot of losers. That was Eric Margolis. Many thanks to him and also to Ryusei Takahashi for talking with me this week. Links to their reporting are in the episode notes. If you'd like to hear us do more on the climate crisis and its impact on Japan, let us know. Get in touch on Twitter by following at Japan Deep Dive or you can email me directly at deepdive at japantimes.co.jp. That's it for this week. Until next time, Potsukane-sama. Potsukane-sama.